All right, and we are live. What's up, guys? Welcome to Fed It Man. We got a lot to talk about. We got an episode on a hitman from the early 90s. It's going to be a great episode. Murder for Hire. Let's get into it. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what Fed It covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on glass. Murder investigation. See him reaching in his jacket. You don't know, and he's positioning. Been on February 13, 2019. You're facing two counts of premeditated murder. Racketeering and Rico conspiracy. Young slime life here and after referred to as YSL. The defendants uh, six nine, and then this is Billy Seiko right here. Now, when they first started, guys, six nine ran. Well, I'm a fed. I'm watching this music video. You know, I'm bobbing my head like, hey, this shit lit. But at the same time, I'm pausing. Oh wait, who this? Right? Oh, who's that in the back? Firearms and violent crimes, aka Pushaisi violated. In order to stay away from the victim, Pushaisi arrested after shooting at King of Diamonds, Miami Strip Club, injured one person. This is the one that that's gonna fuck him up because this gun is not traceable. Well, it happened at the gun range. Here's your boy, 42 Doug, right here on the left. Okay. Sex trafficking and sex crimes. They can effectively link him to paying an underage girl. I'm gonna love my trip right, right. And the first bomb went off right here. Inspired by Al Qaeda, two terrorists, the brothers, the Zokar Sarnev and Tamer Lin Sarnev. When the cartels ship drugs into the country, as this guy got arrested for um, espionage, okay, trading secrets with the Russians for monetary compensation. The largest corrupt police bust in New Orleans history. The days of the police are gone. So he was in this bad boy. We're gonna go over his past, the gang ties, so that this all makes sense. All right, what's up, guys? Welcome to Fed It, man. I'm here with two special guests in the house, Christina and Mia. You guys want to introduce yourself to the people real quick? You want to go? Hello, I'm Mia. Uh, currently, a lot of what I'm doing is um, I'm doing TikTok managing for Fresh and Fit. And, yes, she is. Yeah. As well Shout as her. Other uh, social media slash talent management um, opportunities that I've been pursuing. Bam. Welcome. Then what about you, Christina? Hi, Hi I'm Christina. Um, Honestly, I'm just going to go down to FedEx. If you guys are in Memphis or New York, please contact me at, on IG at FedEx1811 or my IG at Christy Rojas. Um, I just need people to get some documents. Bam. She's right to the business. Yeah. But uh, yeah, guys, this is a second take, man, because I recorded this already. And then what ended up happening was uh, the audio didn't play. So we're doing it again, man. It is what it is. Uh, because we got to get this content out to you guys, man. We got we to work hard over here. But anyway, with that said, guys, without further ado, we're going to break down a documentary from FBI Files. You guys have come to learn and love one of my favorite documentaries. This is a case from the early 90s that concerns a murder for hire investigation. Uh, so, yeah, without further ado, ladies, you have anything you want to say before we get into it? I'm excited. All right, let's get into it, man. When three people were found murdered in their home, it appeared like a burglary gone awry. But a crime this horrific deserved a closer look. The suspect who had the most to gain from the deaths also had the perfect alibi. Photographic proof that he was 3,000 miles away when the crime was committed. I'm Jim Kallstrom, former head of the FBI's New York office. It's our job to find the holes in even the most bulletproof alibi. In this case, we had our work cut out for us. Montgomery County, Maryland, police officer responded to Vivian Rice's frantic 911 call. 
He found a female victim dead just inside the front door. He also found a second woman dead. And a young boy, apparently murdered in his bed. We've got uh, three victims here. We need uh, detectives and uh, evidence technicians over here. Through the day and into the... Anytime bodies are discovered, guys, the primary job of the officer that discovers the scene is to, you know, make sure the scene is preserved, safe, taped off so that investigators can come and get collect as much evidence when it's fresh as possible, because the first 48 hours is always critical to solving a murder case. Tonight, investigators would scour the scene for evidence, thoroughly searching both inside and outside the house. They soon identified all the victims. Mildred Horn was a 43-year-old divorced mother employed as an American Airlines flight attendant. She had been shot three times in the head. Her eight-year-old quadriplegic son, Trevor, who required round-the-clock nursing care, appeared to have been suffocated. Police found him disconnected from his respirator. And Trevor's overnight nurse, 38-year-old Janice Saunders, had been shot twice in the skull. And that's where the noise was coming from, guys, uh, with the respirator, because once, you know, obviously some danger arises or their blood pressure goes down or anything happens with their vitals, the machine starts to make a lot of noise. So the nurse knows to come over. And in the eye. Evidence technicians began work immediately. They were thorough, but there was little evidence to collect. They dug a single distorted bullet fragment from the wood beside Trevor's window. Investigators took swabs of blood, carefully collecting samples for DNA testing. But the blood would match only the victim's DNA. With so little to lead investigators to a suspect, technicians scrounged harder for clues, collecting anything and everything that seemed promising. Outside the house, investigators found a metal file. That's going to be very important later on, guys. So make a note of that. They found the metal file outside of the home. Police were thorough, but the killer had been meticulous. Montgomery County, Maryland homicide detective Craig Wittenberg, named lead investigator, struggled to make sense of a case with three helpless victims, no obvious motive, and few clues. There were some things that struck us. So this was the lead investigator on this on this case, guys. Uh, typically, uh, when it comes to homicide and, <clears throat> and rotations, whoever was on duty on that night is the one that's going to clean up that case when it comes through because homicide investigators are typically on call 24-7, so he got assigned this case. So as the main... Uh, case detective or case officer in this case, he's going to be the one responsible for gathering all the evidence, writing the reports, writing affidavits, preparing search warrants, and presenting the case to the ADA or assistant district attorney for prosecution. As odd, I think, from the very beginning of the on-scene investigation 
inside the house. The foyer area, a closet. And that's actual uh, footage from uh, the, the crime scene, which, you know, in the early 90s, that's to bring in probably a big ass camcorder and lug that thing in and take video. <laughs> the contents had been dumped. Everything been pulled out of the closet, dumped onto the floor. We found a purse, which we would later learn ultimately belonged to Millie. You had a lot of stereo entertainment equipment, TVs, uh, a lot of jewelry, furs um, that was untouched and left, uh, which again strikes you as odd. If this is a if this is a burglary or robbery going bad, you're going to take something. Which back then, guys, you got to remember back in the 90s, right? Having that type of equipment was extremely expensive. You know, any type of entertainment, television, uh, entertainment equipment, VCRs, cable boxes, televisions, all this stuff was expensive back in the 90s, man. So, you know, this was very unnormal for someone to break into the house. It'd be all ransacked like that and no one actually take anything. Um, you know, it's not like nowadays where you can get a TV for next to nothing. Back then, you know, things were a little bit more expensive, especially like good entertainment equipment. What so, year was this? This was 93. Okay. 93. Way before you were born. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah. When, when were you born, uh, Mia? 99. God damn, 99? <laughs> Barely 93. In fact, Mildred's minivan was missing from the garage, as her sister had noticed. But it was found quickly, not far from the house. So that's important. They found a car not too far from the home. Some of Mildred's credit cards were also missing. But found the next day on a nearby roadside by a jogger. Got y'all the closed caption, baby. Investigators now positively eliminated burglary as a motive. Instead, they wondered if the missing items were a deliberate attempt by the killer to throw them off his trail. The scene had the earmarks of a planned professional execution. As for a suspect, at the crime scene, Vivian told them Mildred's ex-husband, Lawrence Holm, was probably responsible. Man, these these uh, captions are sucking right now. But uh, yeah, so there we go, guys. We got our first suspect right now. Okay. Her husband, ex-husband, Lawrence Horn. Guys, not Lawrence Holm, but Lawrence Horn. She begged him to investigate. He quickly became the prime suspect. All the family members. And just so you guys know, typically the first person that's found at, uh, at the crime scene or the person that discovers the crime scene is almost always going to be heavily interrogated by the police. They're typically the first suspect. Um, unless the police are able to quickly identify someone else. So in this case, right, you had a, a divorced woman that was murdered. You know, a likely suspect a lot of times is going to be the ex-husband. So she's able to quickly say, hey, it was more than likely Lawrence Horn that was involved. And, and the police were able to divert their attention to him. But, you know, if you find a dead body, best believe that they're going to ask you a bunch of questions and you're going to be the primary suspect in the beginning with a homicide investigation. Because remember, guys, that first 48 hours is critical to them solving the case were giving us this information that kept pointing to Lawrence Horn that would be based on um, the very stormy, rocky relationship that Millie and Lawrence Horn had had for many, many years. 
Uh, Danny, could you get this drum set up in number five for me, please? Investigators learned that in the 1960s and 70s, Horn had been a top producer and recording engineer for Motown Records, credited with many hits, including Shotgun by Junior Walker and the All-Stars. He'd married Mildred, an airline attendant, in 1973. Then he'd moved with Motown from Detroit to Los Angeles. But when the company's fortunes waned, so did his. He and Mildred divorced in 1987, but their problems continued. As Bob Dean, Maryland assistant state's attorney, soon discovered. All right. And when, when they say Maryland state's attorney, guys, that's the equivalent to uh, assistant district attorney. Same thing. He's a prosecutor at the state level. And as you guys know, typically the state takes exclusive rights when it comes to premeditated murder investigations. Feds are only involved in murder investigations when there's some other type of prerequisite cr crime involved, whether it was gang related, racketeering, RICO influence. It was during the commission of a federal crime, like let's say a bank robbery. But when it comes to murder in itself, just standalone murder premeditated or otherwise, it's almost always investigated by the state predominantly. So it would make sense that <clears throat> you got a Maryland investigator and then you got a Maryland assistant district attorney uh, involved in the investigation. We did some research on Lawrence Horn in the courthouse that day, uh, particularly um, what the status of his child support uh, payments were and whatever civil uh, aspects of his ongoing uh, civil battle with his wife were. And he had just been held in contempt several months before for failure to pay $18,000 $18, in child support. But in reviewing more... Oh, that's a clue right there. He owed some money. Court records. Investigators learned that on March 3rd, the day of the murders, Horn's financial outlook had brightened considerably. With his wife and son dead, he now stood to inherit 1.7. Do we know why they died? The money came. One one point seven million dollars. Was that uh, Mia? His his wife and son died. Yeah. Got... Oh, so is this? Are these? Is this the wife and son? Yeah. I'm stupid. <laughs> it yes. just said the whole time. And it oh. just said why. Oh, well, it's because there was two dead women and then one son. So I was wondering if like who if this killer was a random guy or if no, you're gonna like, get we're gonna get to that. Husband. We're gonna get okay. to that. <laughs> she's she's another world, guys. Don't worry about that. Um <laughs> but yeah, so 1.7 million dollars, guys, just so you guys know, let me go ahead and show y'all um what 1.7 million dollars in 1993 would have been today. It's um <clears throat> It, it would have been three million four hundred eighty-four thousand three hundred sixty-four dollars and seventy-one cents today, guys. So that's what one point seven million dollars. So that's what he was standing to win, um, if his if his son passed away. And obviously, that would be split among him and his wife. So that each of them would have got like what six hundred fifty thousand thousand dollars back then in nineteen ninety-three. So if she's dead, he gets all one point seven million, which in today's buying power is almost three point four million dollars. So. Quick little recap of what's going on here. So, so far, um, we, there's three dead, right? You got the nurse, the mom, and the son, right? Uh, the son was on a respirator, and he was uh, covered by some type of insurance that would have given him uh, <clears throat> or some kind of lawsuit win that would have gotten the family $1.7 million. Obviously, Lawrence Horn had some issues with his wife. They were divorced. He was a former music uh, musician. She was an airlines attendant. and um, they were divorced, living on opposite sides of the country. 
and um, <clears throat> and that's kind of where we're at so far. But we don't know who the suspect is yet. And, and we're he gonna owed get there. 18K in child support. And he owed $18,000 in child support. Yes, yes. Thank you, Mia. Uh, so there's obviously a strong financial motive here. So, you know, it's looking like uh, the, the police might have a, a solid suspect here. But let's see what happens next. From a malpractice settlement awarded to Trevor when a routine operation left him with brain damage. Should Trevor die, the settlement also listed his beneficiaries. The beneficiaries of Trevor were obviously his mother and his father, and that was Millie and Lawrence. If Millie were dead, Lawrence got everything. At Detective Wittenberger's request, the Los Angeles Police Department contacted Lawrence Horn within hours of the murders. Lawrence, I think you better come out here. They tracked him to his mother's house. Mr. Horn, I'm Police Nolan. told Horn about the murders and were surprised by his response. Am I a suspect? No, sir. Mr. Horn's behavior was very odd. It was odd enough that the LAPD officers took note of it from the very, very outset. Not only did he not want to cooperate and want, to, want an attorney. Uh, and that's strange behavior, guys. Your son just got killed. And, you know, you're kind of like, oh, am I a suspect? What's going on here? Basically, his only questions or inquiries about were whether he was a suspect in this thing. Police took him to the station for further questioning. They asked where he was at the time of the crime. He told them he was with his live-in girlfriend, Shira Boba, and described their activities. Later, they would question her, and she'd corroborate his story. I was at home. If Horn or someone he employed had crossed state lines to commit the crime, they would have violated the interstate travel in aid of racketeering statute, a federal offense under FBI jurisdiction. Bam. So now that's how you get the feds involved, because uh, now we can articulate if he was actually involved in the crime that there was an effect on interstate uh, nexus, which would allow the feds to be involved because he's in L.A. The crime occurred in Maryland, other side of the country. Now, the FBI was brought in. A heinous crime had shocked the quiet community of Silver Spring, Maryland. A triple murder that brutally ended the lives of a quadriplegic boy, his mother, and his overnight nurse. With the prime suspect 3,000 miles away in Los Angeles, the prospect of an interstate investigation loomed. Local detectives called on the FBI. Okay. All right. Goodbye. Special Agent Ed Roach was named case agent. The case uh, immediately became a coast-to-coast -coast, uh, investigation because... The so, same thing, guys. Case agent is the same thing as a case officer. So... He's going to be the primary, uh, you know, person to contact the POC for the Bureau uh, to help the state do this investigation. Because as you guys know, since it's a coast to coast investigation, well, the Maryland investigators are kind of limited because they don't have the jurisdiction to investigate a crime uh, that occurred in Los Angeles, which obviously if this does, ha this did go down, it'd be considered a conspiracy. Uh, so that's why the FBI was brought in to help out.
the principal suspect uh, was living at that time in, in Los Angeles. So uh, we involved uh, the Los Angeles division of the FBI. Perhaps uh, that we could assist uh, later in the investigation, either uh, through uh, profiling at Quantico or with the assistance of uh, the FBI laboratory. And profiling, guys, is when they're able to go ahead and identify uh, a murder suspect based on characteristics left at the crime scene, how the murder was perpetrated, time of day. All these different factors go into it, so it allows the state and locals to be able to kind of hone in on who was uh, more than likely the killer in the crime. And this especially is used in cases where they go cold or it's difficult to identify the suspect. Um, but it's very important to note that the state is still the lead agency on this investigation. The FBI was brought in simply to assist. Desperate for more clues, investigators sent a canine team back to where Mildred Horn's credit cards had been found by a jogger. The team soon recovered a rusty piece of metal, badly corroded, but clearly a gun part. Is that a silencer? It's uh, you'll see here in a second. It's not a silencer, but we are going to get there. But look at look at that. There, you go. there's another clue right here, my friends. Wittenberger sent it to the FBI lab for testing. FBI examiners determined the part was a trigger mechanism from an AR-7 rifle. A gun that's easy to disassemble into small pieces for transport or disposal, which seemed exactly what the killer wow. had done. Efficient. Yeah. He had also taken another step to distance himself from the weapon. He'd very carefully drilled out the serial number. Oh, shit. Often, a trained examiner can piece these numbers back together. But this killer had erased them for good. Another firearms expert would determine how long the gun parted lane by the side of the road. So a quick note on serial numbers, guys. The reason why it's so important for crooks to get rid of serial numbers is because with the serial number, you can trace the gun back. Okay. Think, uh, the ATF or the alcohol, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, they're the ones responsible for any time you purchase a firearm, you have to fill out some paperwork. In that paperwork, that serial number is in there located on the gun. Okay. It's very difficult to drill out and or get rid of. And what happens is when you purchase that firearm, if that firearm is ever found on a crime scene or if it's, if it's ever discovered or reported stolen, whatever it may be, the feds are able to track it. And what they're going to do is, let's say they find your gun under, let's say I buy a gun and they find my gun at a murder scene 10 years prior. Well, they're going to, uh, later, they're going to come back to me, say, hey, you were the one that purchased this gun on such and such date. Where is that, where is that gun now? Or how did that gun end up there? And I'm going to be like, oh, well, you know, I have a bill of sale, right? Hopefully you would have a bill of sale if you sold it. And I sold this gun on such and such day, and then it allows the investigators to have a starting point to figure out how that gun got to that crime scene, okay? So when the serial numbers are drilled out and or removed or whatever it is, which is a federal crime, by the way, to scratch out serial numbers, oh. um, a, it's much tougher for the investigators to go ahead and be able to trace that gun back and get a starting point. You had something, Mia? No, I just didn't know that it was illegal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's illegal to scratch out serial numbers on a firearm. Uh, so let's get back to it. Analysis showed the amount of corrosion was consistent with the time elapsed since the killings had occurred. So this was likely the murder weapon. While the FBI lab processed the gun part, 
Investigators in Maryland interviewed Tiffany Horn, Lawrence and Mildred's 18-year-old daughter. Right straight ahead. She was a student at Howard University in Washington, D.C. They gave her a routine polygraph test, which she easily yeah. passed. Polygraph test, by the way, guys, is simply a lie detector test. Did you commit those murders? They're not really doing them no. anymore, right? They're yeah. Valid. Yeah. They're, they, I mean, they're not admissible in court, uh, but they, they still do them sometimes. Some, some agencies still do them on suspects. Uh, but if I was being investigated for a, a crime, I would never, I'd be like, no, I'm not doing it. Yeah, I've read it's more like a psychology trick. Yeah, it, it, it actually, what it does is it um, asks, it, basically when they ask you questions, it, res, it responds to your biological, like uh, bodily functions. I mean, in terms of why they still use it, even though it's not admissible in court, like they use it to kind of pressure the, the victim, or not the victim, the person that could be guilty. Yeah, into, into confessing or yeah. hey, hey, you're lying on this test or whatever. It gives them it's a basically a tool for them to kind of like try to catch you in a lie. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely not admissible in court because there's so many people that can beat polygraphs. So a lot of crooks beat them all the time. It's and a lot of times it's innocent people that fail them. So. Psychopaths too, because it's based yeah. on your heart rate. Exactly. Yep. Heart rate, sweat, um, all different types of bodily functions uh are measured on the polygraph. Later that day, Tiffany would talk with Detective Wittenberg, revealing three key clues. The first was something that had happened in the summer of 1992. Her father had called, asking her to videotape the outside of her mother's house for him, along with Trevor's room. The idea was so bizarre, she'd only taped Trevor and his nurse, with Trevor in his bed attached to his respirator. Tiffany gave the tape to her father. And you guys got to remember, in 1992, that'd be a weird request because you got to walk around the big ass camcorder trying to like record the <laughs> shit, you know, get on VHS, make sure you got an empty tape. I didn't tape. even think about that. You I know what I'm saying? This is, <laughs> it's not like nowadays where it's like, okay, sure, I'll record a video for you so you could go ahead and, you know, commit a murder down the road. Oh, like, no, nah, now, now, uh, back then in 1992, it was extremely cumbersome to uh, get video footage. So, that's something that would obviously stick out in her memory. Yeah, but iPhone's more It's a weird request. What are you saying? An iPhone's more traceable now. Where, yeah, no, yeah, an iPhone definitely that's is more you traceable now. Destroy the camera if that's it. Yeah, but but again, it's a you got to remember it's a weird request. So for, the for so that's why girl. she was able to remember yeah. it. Like, oh yeah, he wanted me to to record the inside. Now Wittenberger and the FBI wondered if Horn wanted someone to know the layout of the house. Then. On March 1st, two days before the murders, Horn had called her again. He wanted to know where his younger daughter, Tamiel, would be for the next few days. Another clue. Mm -hmm. Tiffany said Tamiel would be with Aunt Vivian the night of March 2nd because her mother was flying out on an early flight the morning of March 3rd. It made investigators suspect that Horn had known when the murders would occur. Yep, he spared one child. Tiffany shared one other revealing incident. At about 2.30, the morning of the murders, she had inadvertently called her mother. Tiffany had hit the wrong speed dial key on her phone. She'd meant to call her boyfriend. Yeah, speed dial was a thing in the 90s, guys. <laughs> she apologized and hung up. 
The timing of the call helped investigators estimate the timing of the murders, along with another observation. Trevor's round-the-clock nurses made entries every hour in a logbook near his bed. Based on that, the 2.30 uh, phone call, the 2 o'clock entry in the nurse's log, and there not being a 3 o'clock entry, uh, and the autopsy findings, I think we pretty much based the time of death as being around two, between 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. So look at all that circumstantial evidence, guys, you know, between um, him wanting a strange recording of the inside of the house, right, with the layout, um, him making sure that his daughter, his youngest daughter wasn't in the home. Um, the nurse's logbook that showed that uh, that was done on the, every hour. Um, and then the final, which was, um, damn it, drawing a blank here, ladies, help me. What was the other thing that, that was also weird? Just asking where the daughter was going to be, the little one. Yeah, there was one other thing that? that he wanted as well. Hold on. It was. First, it was, it was a video camera. Yeah. Um, acting like. Yeah, the video camera. Yeah, and then the daughter. Uh, the daughter. And then it was. Oh, and then and then the fact that she called late at night, right? And accidentally called, was trying to call her boyfriend, yeah. but her mom was awake. Uh -huh. She called her mom on accident. Yeah. So that was those were the, the those were the things that kind of you know. Put, of course, each piece of evidence by themselves isn't that important, but when it's all put together, hmm, this is strange. You know what I mean? So it definitely makes you get the red flag. Three o'clock entry. Uh, and the autopsy findings, I think. On March 11th, about a week after the murders, Wittenberger and his partner flew to L.A. Police officer, search warrant! With the assistance of the Los Angeles Police Department, they carried a probable Where? cause affidavit to search Horn's apartment. Yeah, so what they mean by that, guys, is what basically more than likely happened was the detectives, in this case from Maryland, sent, uh, got with a detective from Los Angeles, right? Hey, I have this probable cause. I need to search this residence. Can you swear to this affidavit for me and get a, 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 a you know a search warrant from the judge in your local area? Because as a Maryland officer, they don't have the authority and/or jurisdiction to swear out an affidavit in front of a judge in California. So LAPD gets involved. They get the affidavit, give it to a judge. He signs it. Boom! Now they're able to go ahead and execute a search warrant in another state, a state search warrant. They collected hundreds of audio and videotapes. Police also gathered computers, personal papers, address books, bank statements, and telephone logs. Back at the station, investigators began the time-consuming task of reviewing all they'd recovered. They'd printed thousands of pages from the hard drives of Horn's computers. They found he'd made handwritten notes on documents regarding Trevor's settlement money. Oh, another red flag. Yeah. Handwritten notes on Trevor's settlement money. The notes confirmed what they already suspected. Horn was well aware he could gain a fortune from his son's death, and he was well versed in the legalities of the settlement. Investigators also found a map that was telling. It was hand-drawn, showing Mildred Horn's neighborhood. The streets were outlined and labeled. An X and her initials marked her house. 
had Horn been directing a stranger to find her, perhaps a contract killer. In the hundreds of hours of more circumstantial evidence, because remember, guys, he's in L.A. Why the hell is he drawing a map of uh, his ex-wife's home? Videotape that were recovered and screened. One home movie stood out. Horn had videotaped himself standing in front of his television set, which was tuned to the cable TV program guide station. The station was clearly broadcasting the time and date. 11.45 p.m., March 2nd, 1993, California time. 2.45 a.m., March 3rd, Maryland time. Exactly the time and date of the murders. Investigators quickly dubbed it the alibi tape. Since it's Holy, yeah. my guy he did that on purpose. was prepared. He totally did that on purpose. Yeah, he wow. was prepared. He had all this stuff in place, man. But, but then those papers, isn't that kind of sloppy having those papers? With all yeah, those but I think notes. for him, he didn't anticipate that they would search his home. Huh. So, yeah, uh, that's Seems funny. Been created for that purpose. Now, Wittenberger and the FBI. But you got to remember, he could always say, oh, well, I took notes on it because it was just I need to, to know the policy and understand the policy, blah, blah, blah. Like. The thing with circumstantial evidence is that it's typically weak on its own and you can easily refute it, right? Like in that case, oh, uh, I, you know, I found that your policy and you had a bunch of handwritten notes on it. What was that? Oh, well, you know, he can easily explain. Well, you know, yeah. I just want to kind of know it. I wrote some notes, asked an attorney, you know, nothing too crazy. But when you add the fact that, you know, he wanted to make sure his daughter wasn't in the house. Mm -hmm. He asked for a strained VCR vid from his from his 18 year old daughter of the home. He had a map of the home. Um and then yeah. you had uh, the fact that he did a strange home movie where he um, was in front of the TV with the day and time saying, look where I'm at, niggas. Day and time right here. I'm here in L.A. and whatever. Then it starts to look more suspect. That's yeah. the beauty of circumstantial evidence when, uh, when you know. It could be a hire. Like put he together. hired somebody. What was that? It could be that he hired somebody. Oh, like we'll get there. Or, we'll get or, there. Exactly. So we'll see what happens next. Um, but, yeah, the fact that he did, took all these steps to distance himself are definitely big. Red flags seemed to have some substantial leads, but they were still far from apprehending the mastermind of this brutal crime. When investigators searched the LA apartment of their prime suspect in a triple murder, they discovered a suspicious videotape. Among themselves, they called it the alibi tape, but they would soon find a recording that was even more incriminating. A 22-second excerpt from Horn's dozens of audio tapes. It was from a conversation between Horn and an unknown male. The words were cryptic, but their meaning was clear. I gave a talk. No. Okay. All right, so I mean, I'm sitting there. Can you uh, take a picture? I can take a picture of him, you know, right, you know, right. There, but I could the noise. You understand what I'm saying? I wasn't able to. The noise, like the monitor. Hmm. We'll see. Do that. I didn't, I didn't want to go uh, front way. After listening to that, we felt. Mr. Horn probably was in Los Angeles at the time. 
we also felt after listening to that conversation that this was probably the individual that committed these homicides making that phone call. With the help of the FBI, investigators subpoenaed telephone records from AT&T for all the calls placed to Lawrence Horn's residence from a week before the murders to a week after. Most were useless, but four long distance calls stood out. Two had been made just days before the murders from a Detroit payphone. The other two were made in the early hours of March. So guys, real quick, what's a subpoena? A subpoena is basically, you know, a, a legal document that, you know, requires a company or entity or whatever to go ahead and, you know, if they want to summon some records or get some information. So investigators a lot of times are able to subpoena phone companies and go ahead and get toll records. What are toll records? Toll records are basically, you know, phone calls coming in and out out of a potential phone number and or <clears throat> cell phone or d device, whatever it is. Um, and they're able to go ahead and look at calls. And in this case, since it's a murder, what they're going to do is they're going to look at the toll records for a particular set of time to see, okay, who was Lawrence, Hearns, Lawrence Horn speaking to during this period of time? Maybe we can identify the person that potentially was hired to commit this murder because we know he was in Los Angeles, so it would have been physically impossible for him to do it. However, more than likely, he's going to be in communication with the bad guy that's involved. So... Uh, this is a common technique used from investigators to identify co-conspirators, subpoenaing phone records and uh, getting those um, getting those records. You can subpoena phone records, text messages, all that type of stuff. Now, are you going to actually see the contents of said communication? No, you would need a Title III for that. However, this will give you a good starting point to figure out who's who and identify other potential conspirators. You can subpoena people too, right? Yes, you can. Okay. You can. I thought third from payphones near Mildred Horn's house one from outside a Denny's restaurant and the other from a day's in yeah, before you guys wonder what the hell is a payphone a payphone is a <laughs> was a big thing back in the 90s people didn't have cell phones right they had beepers and you know if they were needed to be contacted they get the beeper hit they go to a, the nearest payphone you know put in a couple quarters and go ahead and make that phone call so beepers? that's yeah yeah beepers. what what is that like yes. a device that beeps when you, people are trying to contact you? Yeah. Oh, my God. How old are you? <laughs> 23. <Okay. laughs> she has no clue. Yeah. No, I've never no heard clue. of this. Yeah. So beepers, like, man. It's like before. It's like no one wanted a cell phone. They wanted like a beeper. So it was like a signal hit. If somebody's it's like trying a little device. You. So it's like you wow. pretty much call it and then you, the number pops up on it saying like you can leave a message. But it's not a phone. You can't like. No, like you just get a beep. It's like, you no, know doctors still use it to this day. Yeah, they do. Yeah. It's like. It's just like, oh. hey, like you gotta be like, oh shoot, uh, my friend said the car hurt. Okay, so go to a payphone or go to like a house phone. Just, oh wow. wow, I'm gonna Google this later. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of this. Okay. Yeah, that's why I had to explain it because I know a lot of young people are like, what the hell? What? Why that's is everyone okay. using a payphone? This doesn't make sense. That's okay. So yeah. The call. But that's important to note that that, they, that they're seeing payphones, uh, conversations. The Denny's was made to the home of Lawrence Horn. At 5.12 a.m. Maryland time, just a few hours after the murders. Was it the cryptic 22-second conversation? Yeah. And who had made the call? Investigators spent hours scanning dozens of registration forms from local motels. Hey, uh, 
So the subpoenas, right? So see you guys how this all built upon itself. The subpoenas were able to allow them to identify a payphone that was used in Maryland, right? Around the time, a few hours after the murder. So now they're like, okay, let's look at all the hotels in that area because this person probably was an out-of-towner. And that's how they're able to uh, get to this point. Back of the hotels and the motels in the area, uh, a few miles circumference of the murder scene, turned up an individual checking in approximately midnight the day these murders were committed. Checking in at midnight. To the day's end, using a Michigan driver's license in the name of James Edward Perry. Oh, shit. James Edward Perry seemed a promising suspect. With Lawrence Horn's roots in Detroit's music industry and the Detroit call in his telephone records, perhaps there was a connection. Background checks revealed he'd served about 10 years time for shooting a Michigan state trooper after an attempted bank robbery in the early 1970s. Shooting a state trooper? Looks like a promising suspect. <laughs> now he was a minister. He claimed he would. Now he's a minister. He's a but one of the Lord. Be able to pick lottery numbers for people. Uh, people could call him for his advice. Uh, he had business cards and flyers that he would hand out. Uh, that he was like I say a uh, a minister. I believe he called himself on some of these things Apostle James. Hmm. As investigators learned more about Perry, Wittenberger <laughs> in Lawrence Horn's telephone records, he'd noticed some calls had been made on a calling card. What do you want? He subpoenaed the records. The name on the card was Camilla McKenney. FBI agents appeared at Camilla's address. Instead, they found Marsha Webb. It turned out she was Lawrence Horn's cousin. Oh, no. She said Horn had asked her to get the card, claiming he needed Lawrence it for Horn business. She'd made up the name McKinney. She thought her past payment problems might keep her from getting a card. All right, now you guys are probably wondering, what the hell is a calling card? Basically, guys, it's a card that allows a user to make phone calls up to a specified value or charge the cost to a specific account so it's a way to kind of like you know shell your uh, your activities on a phone to another level so obviously this is another red flag as well to conceal the nature of the phone calls and the fact that he had his uh a relative do it for him under another name more of a red flag the calling card records revealed a complex web of phone calls they began almost a year before the murders oh, wow. and continued for several months after. We examined the records for that calling card account and saw that there were numerous calls throughout 1992 and 1993 from payphones in Los Angeles. Payphones that we plotted out on a street grid, primarily within walking distance of Lawrence Horn's house. Uh, more, more clues. Went directly to James Perry's house in Detroit. And likewise, there were numerous calls from 1992 to 1993 of pay throughout Detroit, primarily on the east side of Detroit, which is where James Perry lived. 
to Lawrence Horn's house in Hollywood. And we figured Perry was looking for the rest of his payment. And uh, we, we surmised that, uh, that Horn was waiting for uh, his windfall from his son's estate. But if it seemed investigators had finally hit the jackpot, the prize remained just out of their grasp. Connecting suspects to calls required painstaking detective work, logging the time and phone number where each call was made and received, then attempting to place the suspects accordingly. It's a lot of work, guys. A lot, a lot of old-fashioned uh, detective work right there. Because none of these Born calls Perry. get recorded or saved anywhere like today, right? No. Nah. These payphones. No, nah, no, nah, with these payphones, no. Nah. You would have to wiretap the phone to be able to get those records. Uh, the only thing you can get from the payphones is like the call records of like when uh, when a phone call was made and to where, but that's about it. So you the, can't get the actual contents of it. Their best bet is having like some camera footage that shows proof of who was in these payphones. Right? Yeah, but the thing is, in the nineties, they wouldn't have that. They uh, have nothing in nineties. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> it was tough, man. That's and, and the fact that these guys were using calling cards and all this other stuff made it even tougher. Yeah, covered their tracks with many layers of deception. Investigators were beginning to bog down, and their frustration was starting to show. It starts out at an extremely, extremely fast pace. Um, everything's hot and heavy, very uh, high-profile murder, uh, murder case. Everything, like I say, is rocking and rolling very quickly. Uh, then, all of a sudden, the skids are put on. If the investigation starts to slow down. <laughs> Because now we're we're we've almost shifted gears and now going into a documentation that turns into almost a paper trail case. And I can tell you guys this from my experience that paper, you know, going from like, you know, a response case like that where things are moving fast to it, all of a sudden it's like a document paper case. You're like, ah, oh, fuck, like, ah, oh, man. What? And you just get mad as hell because you're just like, ah, oh, because you want to go ahead and get things done. But obviously when you got, you know, a complex situation like this where you got a bunch of phone calls. You got conspirators, you know, across state lines, coast to coast. You got to make sure, and it's a murder case. Obviously, it's very serious. You need to be able to look at all the records, okay? Um, and on top of that, these guys took some meticulous steps to protect their identities from being uh, from being discovered for after the crime. So let's see how the police were able to crack this one. But Wittenberger and the FBI stayed on the trail like bloodhounds. And in late September of 1993, they closed in on James Perry. They began a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week surveillance. And I'll tell you guys this. Doing surveillance 24-7 is a pain in the ass. As a guy that's done it before, it requires a shit ton of manpower. You need different shifts. You're going to need, you know, eight to ten guys per surveillance block. It is not easy to, to do, man. So... The fact that they were going so hard, I mean, lets you know the gravity of the importance of this case, right? A child was killed and two women, a nurse and a mother. So they're going to do what they got to do to make sure that they catch these guys. Because at this point, they got some good circumstantial evidence, but they don't have anything actually concrete that identifies these guys as the cold, hard killers. We had the Michigan State Police and the FBI. Both, both agencies agreed to put them under surveillance in a cooperative effort. And this is a great um, teamwork, by the way. The fact that the Maryland uh, State 
state um, investigators are the main guys that are running the case. And then you got the FBI and the Michigan State Police that are assisting, that are you know donated you know donated quite a bit of manpower to making this case happen. Um, and obviously, I'm sure the Michigan State Police would be interested because this guy shot a Michigan State trooper back in the day. So they're probably trying to get their revenge on this guy. Like, hey, oh, this guy is involved. All right, we're involved. So it was during a week in September that we saw that James Perry hung out with a particular individual. We didn't know who he was until we checked the tag of his car. This guy named Thomas Turner. Bam, and they identified him through what? 24-7 surveillance. This is old-fashioned police work, my friends. You're not going to be able to get information like this a lot of the times unless you watch your guy and see who they're meeting with, with what they're doing, etc. So this was a very important lead for them. A background check showed the 52-year-old Turner was a trucker by trade. More significantly, he was another of Lawrence Horn's cousins. Oh, he was also fast friends with Perry. The two had met in prison 13 years before when Perry was serving time for the state trooper shooting incident and Turner for robbing a bank. Bam. Another big link. Identifying Turner would prove an important break in the case. But for now, investigators were hoping for something more immediate. Wittenberger and an agent did what investigators call tickling the wires. They paid Perry a visit, thinking Perry would then contact Horn and start talking. I've done this myself before. It's actually a pretty good technique to allow you to go ahead and, uh, you know, stimulate the investigation a little bit. And since they were already looking at the phone records, it allows them to kind of just be like, oh, you know what? Let, let's let's, uh, you know, poke the bear a little bit, see what happens with these guys, because if you're able to poke the bear and <clears throat> and you're actually monitoring the phone lines pretty, uh, uh, pretty tightly, you'll be able to see patterns of, of communication. And if he goes ahead and contacts Horn or the other guy right after the police make contact, well, that, there's a pretty good sign more than likely that they're going to be talking about some type of criminal activity like, oh, the police hit me up, blah, blah, blah. We need to watch out, et cetera. So I actually have done this myself before where <clears throat> I would, uh, you know, when I was on a wiretap, I would, you know, we, I, we would uh, basically like make contact with the bad guys or we would have an informant call and, you know, say something and then watch the fucking phone lines go crazy with him, like calling other people saying like, yo, I think this is going on, blah, 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 and allows you to kind of get insight as to uh, the criminal activity in the criminal organization a bit more. So, uh, ladies, got anything? Interesting. No, I, I didn't know that that was used. Why, like, wouldn't that give it away to them that they're being watched or spied? It could. Yeah. It could. It's, it's it definitely depends. a calculated risk, and it can um, cause some potential issues. It's always a risk. But, um, you know, it, it works. I mean, it, it definitely uh, allows for, uh, you know, how do I say this? It's, it's a calculated risk that allows for you to get um identify other people and or see who's really involved uh, you know yeah. so in this case since they're kind of probably lower on evidence they don't they have a lot of good circumstantial evidence they probably want to get something a little bit more solid mm -hmm. so we'll see what ends up happening with them uh doing this tickling of the wire and it's interesting because at this point i don't think they're wiretapping phones yet so this is a really good technique to use when you're wiretapping phones but they have the technology for it right at this point to wiretap phones they could do it yes yeah. okay. yes yes yeah i mean hell they started wiretapping phones i think in like the 70s the, yeah before that before. they're wiretapping phones like in the in the in the i think the first wiretap was you know i'm gonna look it up During i think it was like war. in the 50s but um but they were they were monitoring the phones like probably with pen registers which is like an active feed allows you to see who's calling in and out but 
I don't think they were on wiretaps at this point yet. But I'm gonna actually, I'm actually curious to see um, when they did, first started doing wiretaps. It was a long time ago, though, and maybe even in the 1920s. But let me double check. The investigators only talked briefly with Perry, but he admitted he was in Maryland on March 3rd, though he claimed it was for business and that he knew nothing about the murders. Oh, so he admitted he was in Maryland. Stupid. Right around the time of the murders. What the hell is a guy from Detroit doing out there in Maryland with no family or anything? Hmm, that's a clue. In September of 93, after weeks of wrangling for a court authorization to tap Lawrence Horn's home phone, federal agents finally got the go-ahead. Special Agent Roach was key in obtaining the approval. Okay, so wiretapping got to start in New York in 1895 when a former telephone worker who had joined the city police suggested that it might be a good idea to listen in on wires used by criminals. So, damn, long-ass time. That's wild. Um, yeah. So so they go. So so now, guys, as you can see, they get a federal wiretap on uh, Perry, which is which is huge. You know, now they can actually listen to the phones. So they'll be able to hear conversations real time of what they're talking about. And I'll tell you guys this from my personal experience. Listening to phones is a pain. It, well, listening to phones is a pain in the ass. Getting a wiretap in the first place is an even bigger pain in the ass. You got to write up like a 70 to 100 page affidavit as to why you think you need to go ahead and listen to this phone. A lot of the times it takes more probable cause to listen to someone's phone than it does to arrest them. We were hoping to get the smoking gun, the conversation between James Edward Perry and, uh, and Lawrence Horn. We were hoping for a conversation that would say uh, something like, uh, I want the rest of my money. You know, I did the deed. Uh, the down payment's not enough. Uh, you promised me such and such. I only got this and... Uh, now I want the rest of my money, or maybe uh, you're going to be next. Something like that. <laughs> Wishful thinking, my friend. That would have been terrific. But Horn and Perry were too sly to let anything slip. And by mid-November, with the investigation at full tilt, they stopped talking to each other altogether. Uh... Despite months of slow but steady progress. These guys are smart, man. Horn and Perry. We're still one step ahead of the law. The FBI's coast-to-coast -coast investigation of a triple murder committed in Maryland left agents scrambling to link L.A.'s Lawrence Horn and Detroit's James Perry to their case. Investigators knew the two men were talking, but they didn't know how. Were they using Perry's his former jail buddy, Thomas Turner, as a go-between? The FBI secured authorization to tap Turner's phone. So now they wiretap Turner's phone because the other two guys stopped talking to each other. Let's see what happens. Yep. That was the key. Yeah, Bam. Both Horn and Perry oh, talked yeah. to Turner often, yeah, okay. that's, and that's Turner no relayed messages between oh, them. That? but they were careful not to use language that might incriminate them. And once again, uh, agents found themselves back in the same old grind, monitoring and logging hundreds of calls, then trying to make links between the calls. All right, I'll talk to you later. One surveillance would be taking place, actively taking place, a physical surveillance in Los Angeles on, uh, on Lawrence Horn, 
while at the same time, 24 hours a day, the Detroit division was conducting physical electronic surveillance on Thomas Turner and physical surveillance on James Edward Perry. Ridiculous manpower needed to do that. As before, they made a few connections between calls and callers. But mostly, the process seemed just a test of their endurance and dedication. Horn and Perry were giving them a run for their money. So here's a conspiracy, guys. Just a quick little recap of what's going on here so everyone knows. So you got Horn, who pretty much wanted to get his wife and son killed because he had a big lawsuit settlement, $1.7 million, which is the equivalent of about $3.4 million today in 2022. He would get that if his son died, and obviously he would have had to split that with his wife, so he wants her out the picture too, right? So bam, he'd be like the main organizer. Then you got Perry, who's the alleged potential hitman who was in Maryland when the murder occurred, okay? And you got Turner, who is Lawrence Horn's cousin, but also a good friend of Perry, and they had served time together in prison when Perry was in there for <clears throat> shooting at a, a shooting a Michigan State trooper. So they're surveilling all three parties now at this point because Turner's the middleman in go between between Perry and Horn because they suspect that the feds might be listening to their phones and they don't want to be identified. So um, these guys were very sharp, you know. I mean, and the plan that you see that there was communication between the Perry and Horn since 1992, so a year prior to the murders. Then, around Thanksgiving, after three grueling months, investigators got a bite. Perry was preparing to move. Agents secured a federal warrant to search his residence before he left. That's a good time to search because you know he's going to have all of his stuff ready to go and packed up at the spot before he moves. It was a dangerous mission. Perry had shot a Michigan police officer, and he was known to own high-powered weapons. An FBI SWAT team made the entry. Wittenberger and his partner followed. They roused Perry and his girlfriend from bed, catching them. These actors are hilarious. Them unaware and unarmed. Then they began. To I just have to say that was terrible cuffing technique, you know, coming from a former law enforcement officer. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> they got to do what they got to do, right? To search the house. Police collected videotapes, bank statements, and other documents. Much of what they found seemed strangely out of place in the home of a so-called minister. There were voodoo relics, Soldier of Fortune magazines, and books on topics like criminal investigations, managing gunshot wounds, and interpreting bloodstain evidence. Why would a minister have all that stuff right there? Investigators hoped to prove that Perry had bought the books as well. They called the publishers, getting only one hit from Paladin Press. A canceled check proved to be the turning point in the case. Perry had ordered two books from Paladin Press about a year before the murders. Two chilling titles. Hitman, a manual for independent contractors, and... Oh, this book looks familiar. <laughs> Look what I got, guys. Hope you. 
So I went ahead and got this book for you guys. This book is banned, by the way, and you guys are going to see why here in a bit. Um, but uh, yeah, and it was actually kind of expensive as well because they don't make it anymore. But this is the book, and you guys are going to see here in a second why this book was extremely relevant to this investigation. How to build disposable silencers. When you read through those books, it was... So it was two books, one on building disposable silencers and uh, Hitman, a technical manual for and independent contractors. It's illegal to make your own silencers too, right? I yeah, I, I know having a silencer, it's not illegal to have one. You just got to pay taxes on it. But if you're going to make your own homemade, yeah, more than likely, I, I would assume it's probably illegal. I think illegal. I remember reading that it's illegal to make yeah, your own. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Because you can buy one and have it, but you got to pay taxes on it, and it's got to be registered with the ATF. So when if you make your own, yeah, it's probably going to be illegal. I, I'd have to ask my ATF buddy about that one. I remember reading about that and something along the lines of, like, certain only certain arms can have silencers on them and other ones, like, it, it's not allowed. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. That is true. Very disturbing to see the number of similarities and parallels from the Hitman book to what transpired inside Millie's home on March 3rd. Finally, the pieces began to form a single picture. Mildred's missing minivan was explained. Harry had used it to get back to his rental car, which he'd parked some distance from the crime scene, as the book recommended. The credit cards, found by a jogger on a road near the house, also fit in neatly. It said, to, if you want to make it look like a, a, a burglary, do a little bit of messing around the house, take some items and throw them along the side of the road. It said, throw the pieces of the rifle along the side of the road. Another thing that the book recommended was to take a little narrow file and run it through the barrel of the rifle. And uh, a little narrow file was found in the backyard with uh, deposits of chemicals consistent with gunpowder res gunshot residue. The book also suggested using it. And also, so I'll show you guys real quick what they're talking about when it comes to the filing, right? So as you guys can see here, bam, okay, it goes here. Using a rat tail, and I got it highlighted for y'all right there. Using a rat tail file, alter the gun barrel, the shell, chamber, the loading, uh, sorry guys, I feel like a teacher here loading reading to ramp. a class. Chamber, the loading ramp, the firing pin, and the ejector pin. Each of these items leave is, leaves its own definite mark and impression on the shell casing, which, if any shells happen to be left behind, can be matched up to the gun under a microscope in the police laboratory. So that is true, guys. Each gun that fires a bullet creates its own individual fingerprint on said bullet. So by getting rid of um, certain things on the weapon, uh, the, uh, altering the gun barrel, that will also help. And then also with the, uh, with the serial number here, I got to find the page here. I'll find it. I'll keep playing the documentary for y'all and I'll find it. But it talks about how to also file down the, what page is it? Okay. While Christina does that, we'll keep playing the documentary for y'all. An AR-7 rifle, exactly the gun whose trigger mechanism was found earlier. Likewise, examiners determined the single spent bullet found in Trevor's room was 22 caliber, popular with assassins. 
also in the book where they suggested the AR7 right here. You go to your recommended uh, equipment list, right? Uh, let me bring that closer to you guys so you can see what I'm talking about here. You see it right there, AR7 rifle, um, basic equipment checklist, and a 360 powered scope, disposal rifle silencer, two extra 15 or 30 short rifle clips, uh, 22 Ruger Mark One or Mark II pistol, disposal pistol silencer, shoulder holster, extra pistol clip, and then hollow point bullets. So it's on the equipment list, man. Yeah, let's keep going. 22s distort when they enter a human body, so it's hard to match them to a gun. They're also small, quiet, and inexpensive. In now, as far as the serial number of the gun, guys, I found the page right here. Uh, so it goes right here. So second, uh, set, this is page 23. Second paragraph right here. So it goes, if the serial number is on the barrel of the gun, grinding deeply enough to remove it may weaken the barrel to the point that the gun could explode in your face when fired. To make these numbers untraceable, use a hammer and chisel or a numbering set purchased from the hardware store to stamp them out or make them illegible. Make sure your blows go as deep or as little or a little deeper than the existing numbers then grind the serial numbers off slightly. This method will keep the true serial number from being raised in any acid test if the part is found. Wow. Yeah, pretty That's detailed, so huh? detailed. That's crazy. January of 1994, there was another big break in the case. After months of pressure from Wittenberger, a grand jury subpoena finally brought in Thomas Turner. He agreed to oh, so they brought Thomas Turner on a grand jury subpoena. What's a grand jury subpoena, guys? A grand jury subpoena is basically when you use a grand jury, which is a, you know, you convene a bunch of citizens from the local area. Think of it as like a jury almost, right, uh, in, in a criminal investigation. And they basically hear a case out, and then they can go ahead and get you a grand jury subpoena to bring someone in and testify under oath, of course, um, to the grand jury. And they can't lie. It's basically like a deposition. So in this case, they brought this guy in and to testify. And you're going to see here in a second why he ended up cooperating. Talk in exchange for immunity. Because they could have got him for conspiracy as well. So for him not being charged, he's going to go ahead and sing like a bird. In a deposition for a Maryland grand jury, Turner said his cousin, Lawrence Horn, had come for a visit in May of 1992, five months before the murders. Though Turner hadn't seen him in 20 years, Horn immediately complained of trouble with his ex-wife, Mildred. Turner gave him the name of James Perry. That's all Turner would say, though Wittenberger believed he knew much more. Fortunately, he'd said enough. At, at that point, because of what we had learned from Thomas Turner, and what we had learned from um, in the Hitman book and the wiretaps, we felt we were in a position to establish a conspiracy, to establish that James Perry had, in fact, carried out the killings. That summer, Wittenberger struck. On July 19, 1994, he arrested Horn at his Los Angeles apartment without incident. Um, they finally got him. Gotcha, bitch! Wittenberger would question him for 45 minutes at the police station. But Horn refused to talk about the crime. 
On the same day, FBI agents in Detroit were waiting for a judge to sign the warrants for the arrest of Perry. In the meantime, they conducted an overt surveillance. The tactic is designed to pressure a suspect while making sure he doesn't flee. <laughs> Wasn't supposed to be a covert surveillance, so we really didn't care if he saw them or not, uh, we just didn't want it to be a confrontational surveillance until the warrants were signed. Once the warrants were finalized, agents could arrest him. Until then, they would follow him in the open, knowing he knew they were there. They would keep him in sight at all times. Perry grew increasingly annoyed. The FBI didn't let up. It seemed Perry wondered what the FBI was trying to do, though he seemed more irritated than concerned. He probably thought they he didn't have enough on still him. In clear view of what was that? He probably just thought they didn't have enough on him. Yeah, exactly. So he's annoyed. He's like, what the hell? Why are these guys following me? Little does he know. They didn't know where he was headed, but stayed with him anyway. Watch. He stopped to pick up a friend. A man the agents were not familiar with. The two drove off in Perry's car with the tail close behind. Well, let's give him something to play with. Then, incredulous, agents guessed where Perry was going. After only about an hour, the constant tale had made Perry so angry, he decided to file a complaint. Amazingly, he took his gripe straight to the Detroit FBI field office. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Stupid. Perry's timing was incredible. He and his friend arrived at the office just as FBI agents awaited final word on his arrest warrant. I want to see an FBI agent now. This is a bad idea. Now, I want to see an FBI agent right now. Perry demanded to see an agent. I'm not going to calm down. And he was quickly accommodated. A clerk called Special Agent Roach. Bring one in. Come on, you can hold them. Sir, would you step aside, please? While agents checked him for weapons, Perry confronted Roach, wanting to know if agents were going to arrest him or if they were just planning to harass him. And we told him in minutes, you were going to be expect a phone call from Montgomery County, Maryland, telling us the warrants have been signed and you've been indicted for three counts of first degree murder. Holy shit, just let him know. Came in a few minutes later, and we advised him that he was in fact under arrest oh man that's a fucking hell for him could you imagine <laughs> he showed a, up so entitled yeah he's like oh, i'm tired of this shit stop following me 
But now, even with both men in custody, one question still remained. If Perry was the hired gun, how had Horn paid him for the crime? After months of relentless pursuit by local investigators and the FBI, the elusive Horn and Perry were finally in custody. But there remained a nagging question. How had Horn paid Perry for the crime? The answer came two months later, only as a result of still more dogged detective work. As we were reviewing the results of the search on James Perry's house, we noticed this photograph that in essence showed various cassette tapes that James Perry had. Uh, that was the purpose of the photograph, but underneath one of the items here, we saw a Western Union card. We got a bundle of records from Western Union showing us that there were indeed a number of transactions from Los Angeles. Now we finally got the money trail. To James Perry's living girlfriend. Of course, Ellen it's a McGee. Wells Fargo, too. Person <laughs> well, yeah, Wells Fargo, the worst bank George ever. Bernard Shaw. Well, we now had another area to investigate for a few months. After much digging, Dean discovered a man named George Bernard Shaw had died in July of 1992 in an auto accident in Los Angeles. When Dean sleuthed out the LA Times for the day of Shaw's death, he discovered the man's connection, though it wasn't in his obituary. We have on the front page, Mary Wells dies. And for those in our generation, she was a big Motown star. Go to the obituary page, big story about Mary Wells dying in Los Angeles. In the lower right-hand corner was a list of other people who had passed away. One is a guy named George Bernard Shaw with no information about him, just the cemetery. Lawrence Horn had used the name of this anonymous dead man as the front for his payments, which were made with the money Horn was able to save. Almost two years after the crime, investigators had finally pieced together the whole story. Bam. So now we're going to go into a summary of the investigation of what they think actually occurred that led to these crimes. And guys, they got a pretty good amount of, um, you know, circumstantial evidence, which they're going to go over right now. But before they do that, guys, don't forget to like the video, subscribe to the channel. You know, I mean, we're making content like this for all the time. We do one documentary breakdown per week and we also do one live stream per week. And we also release clips almost every day. So please subscribe to the channel, like the video. Uh, guys, any thoughts so far before we get into how the police suspect that these guys did this? I just think it's interesting how part of his motive, I mean, obviously $1.7 million is a pretty penny, but yeah. he would have gone to jail for the 18000 that he owed. So it was partially also driven by him not wanting to go to jail, Yeah, which is kind of ironic. So and that 18K. he commits a bigger crime that'll give him even more jail time. <laughs> and you know, what, let me look up since you said that $18,000. What, what's your thoughts on this, Christina? I just think he's so stupid to like. You gotta talk up, speak up, speak oh. up. I just think he's completely stupid to keep everything. Like I would like literally burn everything, mm. it, get away. Like we kept everything, like the book and the everything. instructions. Yeah, like it's just retarded. Yeah, I don't think he knew that the police were looking at it. But eighty thousand in nineteen ninety three is the equivalent purchasing power to about thirty six thousand dollars today, so about double. So. Yeah. But it doesn't matter on the amount. Like if you don't pay child support, you eventually end up in jail. 
after yeah. after a couple no absolutely times, absolutely and back then that's that's a lot of money so regardless yeah. even in today's day and age 18 dollars is is a lot so all right let's get into how the uh how they piece um how they think this happened it had been a cold and calculated murder for hire that took more than a year to plan james perry had followed the instructions in the hitman book almost to a T. Harry had bought an AR-7 rifle and drilled out the serial number, as the book suggested. And just so you guys know, in the book, okay, it does suggest AR-7 as the primary weapon, and I'll read that little portion for you guys um, right here, okay? And this is on page 22. The AR-7, and it's right here, the AR-7 is recommended because it is both inexpensive and accurate. The barrel breaks down for storage inside the stock with a clip. It is, it is lightweight and easy to carry or conceal when dissembled. The rifle has a ridge on top that will easily accept the scope, even though it is not cut for one. Put the scope in place, tighten it down, then sit it in, uh, sight it in. After sighting it in, scratch a mark behind e each scope clamp to allow remounting of the scope without sighting it each time. A three to six powered scope is recommended to ensure accuracy at up to six, 65 yards. When braced, eight to 15 shots should cover a four inch pattern area with no difficulty. Wow. wow. So that's pretty detailed right there, guys. And uh, sorry, it's really hard to like read it to y'all while looking at the camera. So my apologies there. So it, um, so that's what the book says pretty much verbatim as far as uh, which weapons use. And we read earlier about the serial number and scratching it out, which the book also gives detailed information on that. Disposable silencer using the book's directions. Ah, the disposable silencer. Guys, this book has an entire chapter on silencers, okay? And I'm going to show you this real quick. Starting on page um, 37. Bam. Look at this. The disposable silencer, all right? An entire chapter on this. And it has pictures, diagrams, how to make your silencer. Wow. It's pretty detailed, my friends. Okay. And it goes A to Z on how to do it. It, has, um, on it starts on page 37 is the chapter. And then on uh, 42, it goes ahead. It starts actually um, showing you diagrams of how to do it. Which is, you know, pretty, it's pretty interesting stuff right here. Also, I Googled it. It is, it's technically legal to make a silencer, but you have to do it a very specific way and you have to register the device. Ah, so, so you can make it, but you got to register it. Yeah. Okay. And it has to be made in a very specific way. Mm. That is not like, I guess, whatever that is. Like, that's I guess. That's probably a very, Yeah, very this is probably made in a way silencer. that they can <laughs> actually do a hit, right? Yeah. Uh. He carefully cut the parts and assembled it. He also packed a bag of supplies, a brown mechanic suit so he could walk through Mildred's neighborhood looking like a repairman, and latex gloves so he'd leave no fingerprints. In the months before the crime, he and Horn had talked often yeah. discussing each detail. At Perry's request, Horn had sent him a map of Mildred's neighborhood and a video of Trevor's room. Horn had chosen a date when Tamiel would be out of the house. His only show of mercy in this heinous crime. Yep. Didn't want the daughter there. 
the appointed day, Perry had driven a car rented by Turner from Detroit. He checked into a motel near Mildred's house in Maryland. And just so you guys know, disguising, right? They discuss this in a book as well with disguises. And this is on page uh, 105. Okay. It says here, at the bottom here uh where my middle finger is even if uh someone sees you uh casually uh leaving the victim's house he has uh, bear with me here guys because i'm reading this from the, the camera uh he has no idea of the reason of your visit or what you have done and your disguise will conceal your identity, okay? And then walk, don't run to your car, whatever your planned destination might be. The first thing you do when you reach the car is to change into another disguise and get out of those work clothes. Check them for bloodstains. If there are none, you can toss them into a charity collection box or trash can. If the victim's blood is on those clothes, they must be burned or buried. So, yeah, this book is pretty damn thorough. Wow. Harry had paid cash, as the book recommended hoping the motel wouldn't require an ID. I have to see some ID. Paying cash. I need to see, but it did. Oh, shit. Without his Xerox driver's license, police might never have cracked the case. Stupid. We couldn't believe that he did something that dumb. Stupid. We put him in Silver Spring, Maryland, uh, on the date and the time of the murders. Stupid. <laughs> then... He'd driven his rental car to a shopping center near Mildred's house and walked from there following Horn's hand-drawn map. Hand-drawn map. So in theory, this book would work if he if it wasn't for the human error that, that, that happened there. Yeah, with like, him messing up with that, yeah. It would have been hard, way harder for them to find him because they were able to put him at the location at the same time. In the house, unsuspecting. Nurse Janice Saunders made the 2 a.m. entry on a medical log attached to Trevor's bed. And real quick, guys, this is what the firearm looks like when it's fully assembled right here. Okay, that's the AR-7 with the makeshift um, silencer on it. So now we're going to go into how we actually committed the crime here. Harry approached the French doors at the back of the house, as planned. Though locked, the doors were easily opened. And just so you guys know, the book does have a chapter on, not a chapter, but a section, page uh, 30 called uninvited entry following the uh, uh, following is a template uh, for lock picks which will allow you to make a completely adequate set of picks out of ordinary hacksaw blades ground to shape on your workshop grinder standard picks notice that one has slightly less angle at the tip these two are the most commonly used and then bam the torsion bar notice a small step down at the tip to allow for different sized key slots a, th a large, thick hairpin makes a good torsion bar. So this book also talks about how to break in as well. So, um, and then they got a whole part here 
on lockpick directions and surveillance. <laughs> Where, where's the guy that wrote this today? Uh, Is he still alive? I don't know. That's a good question. Do they even have his name here? Rex Farrell. Probably a, a fake pen name. Oh, yeah. Inside, he assembled his rifle and homemade silencer. <gasps> I have some interesting information. Go ahead, share with the people. The author was actually a woman. And oh, I know, right? And she was she was never actually a killer. She was a cash poor divorced mother of two from Florida who needed money to pay her property taxes. <laughs> what did was she actually a hitman or no? No, she was never a killer. Wow, just a woman that needed to pay taxes <laughs> <laughs> in Florida, too. Oh man, fantastic! <laughs> oh wow, there's a photo of her. Here, let put her That's her. Camera. Oh, hold on, let me put it back. Let me put it on camera. This is this is the girl right here, guys. This is the hitman. What the fuck? <laughs> Very Karen looking. <laughs> Isn't what that the funny? Fuck? <laughs> Holy shit, man. God Who damn it. Thought? Who would have thought, man? My man Perry took advice from a Karen. <laughs> That's why he's in prison now. likely took Saunders completely by surprise. There's a noise. But when the boy stopped breathing, his medical alarm spoke for him. Upstairs, his mother awoke. Mildred Horn went downstairs to investigate. And keep in, guys, keep in mind, guys, he probably had to kill the son in a certain way for them to be able to get the lawsuit money, which is probably why instead of shooting him, he pulled uh, them he pulled a breathing device there she too met the killer harry shot mildred three times in the face laura's probably told him to do that then harry roughed up the house to make it look like a robbery gone bad as the book instructed, he took Mildred's credit cards. But it seems the persistent beeping of the medical alarm unnerved even this calculating killer. 
he stuck to the manual instructions. On his way out, he quickly bored out the gun barrel, using the metal file to foil ballistics tests as the book instructed. And then also, just so you guys know, on page 104, okay, they instruct here, if, uh, oh, hold on, sorry. It goes here, if the, um, if the hit was supposed to look like a burglary, mess the place up a bit and take anything of value that you can carry concealed. Of course, you can't keep anything. These items will have to be ditched along with your work clothes and weapon, but any cash you find is yours to pocket. So that's uh, where they got that part from. And then also, um, talking about the gloves, they actually give a funny part right here, which I thought was very interesting, paying attention to detail. Oh, hold on, let me move this. If you have to take a piss, Flush the toilet with your gloved fingers. You can't imagine how many idiots will remove the gloves to facilitate Operation Zipper to take a pee without thinking they flush before pulling the gloves back or putting the uh put pulling the gloves back on, leaving indisputable evidence to convict them on the primary sources uh for prints during the investigation. So yeah, <laughs> a lot of detail here, and that's the importance of the gloves as well, which is also discussed in this book. And rent using a rental car as well as discussed. Let me see if I can find that page for y'all. For a quick escape, he took Mildred's minivan back to where his rental car was parked. On the way, he'd scattered Mildred's credit cards and the gun parts. Though only the trigger mechanism was found. All right, so I mean, I'm sitting there. Can you, uh... Take a picture. I can take a picture of him, you know, right, you know, right. There, but I could the noise, you understand what I'm saying? I wasn't able to do that. I didn't, I didn't want to go uh, front. Right? It was a case that had to be put together by uh, really an exhaustive search. Of and real quick, with the rental cars, I'll show you guys right here. This is on page 97, last paragraph. Okay, it goes. Uh, bring that into focus. Give me one second. Why is it not? God damn it. I don't know why it's not focusing right now. Okay, there we go. If for some uh, reason you cannot fly, you may have to drive. Uh, trains and buses are too slow, and the trip would tire you considerably. But if time permits, train and bus travel may be the safest method available. In any event... Never use your own automobile as a means to get into the job site. A rental car would be best. Job site. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love uh, how they call it that. Of every clue possible, every clue imaginable. Um, and, and we literally spent a year and a half, two years doing nothing but working on this case. In September of 1995, two and a half years after the murders. There he is. James Perry was brought to trial. That's the hitman right there. Looks kind of crazy. I need a bad hair day. Maryland. Bob Dean served as special prosecutor because of his intimate knowledge of the case. Perry received life for conspiracy and three death sentences for the murders. Those death sentences were later commuted. 
Perry has no chance for parole. He is never admitted to committing the crime. Lawrence Horn's trial began that April in a packed Maryland courtroom. So Lawrence went to trial. He faced the same charges as Perry. So much of the same evidence was used. Bob Bean again served as special prosecutor. After a five-week trial, the jury found Horn guilty on all counts. He showed no emotion. And like Perry, he never confessed to the crime. On May 13th, Horn received three life sentences without parole. He appealed once and was denied. Justice is served. I think both Mr. Horn and Mr. Perry did a very good job in planning this, and they came very close to getting away with this. There would be one more bittersweet victory for the families of the victims. Following the murders, they filed a federal lawsuit against the publishers of Hitman, a technical manual for independent contractors. In late May of 1999, they won the suit, including a multi-million dollar settlement and a promise from the publisher to stop selling the book. Wow. Crazy stuff, huh? How did you get it if it's banned? Uh, I was able to find it on Amazon, but it was more expensive significantly. It was like 70 bucks or something. So, yeah. Uh, so, uh, ladies, final thoughts? Fresh favorite quote on the on the documentary? I'm just shocked. <laughs> what an interesting book. Like, I'm shocked by the book, I mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what about so, you, Christina? And thank you, by the way. Christina was really helpful in getting this thing for me, so shout out to her. What, what, what are your thoughts on this, Christina? I just feel like you have to be a sick man to kill your own son. Yeah, that is crazy. So, yeah. Spare the so. daughter, though. Spare the daughter. Yeah, because they're, like, not going to... They're pretty much not comatose, but yeah, exactly. So, and he was, and he had a lot of money to win, so um, but yeah, hope you guys enjoyed that one, man. Uh, <clears throat> second time is going to be the charm, hopefully, on this one, man. Like I said before, we had recorded this before, but uh, there was an audio issue, so hey, doing it again, right? Uh, but anyway, guys, with that said, don't forget to like the video, subscribe to the channel, check me out. I post clips almost every day. We live stream on Sundays, and I post documentary breakdowns like this, typically on Thursdays, but this one's going to come out a little bit later since we had the audio issue. Love you guys. Catch you guys on the next one. Peace. I'm a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what FedEx covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on glass murder investigation you see him reaching in his jacket you don't know and he's positioning been on february 13 2019 you're facing two counts of premeditated murder racketeering and rico conspiracy young, young slime life here and after referred to as ysl the defendants is, uh, six nine and then this is billy seiko right here now when they first started guys six nine ran with, i'm a fed i'm watching this music video you know, I'm bobbing my head like, hey, this shit lit. But at the same time, I'm pausing. Oh, wait, who this? Right? Oh, who's that in the back? Firearms and violent crimes. AKA, Bushite, he violated. Your order to stay away.